Good evening and welcome once again to our Bible study series in the book of Acts. We are in part 8 of this 12 part series. We're trying to keep moving forward uh, slowly but surely. If you're following along in the notes, we have come to page 155. And as always, I want to mention that the notes and recordings for all of these are available in several different ways. Uh, best way is to go to our website, which is either the old address is new-life-ministries.org. That'll get you there. Or the new address is New Life Church, all one word, newlifechurch-md.org. And again, you can get all the recordings, all of the outlines to follow along there. <clears throat> okay. I want to pick it up where we left off last time. Uh, as has often been the case and will continue to be so, uh, as you read through the book of Acts, you start to get into a sort of a rhythm that uh, the apostles would go to a new place, they would preach the gospel, there would be miracles, signs, wonders, hearts would be open, people would respond to the truth of God's word, many new disciples would be added, and then almost inevitably there's a backlash. There's persecution, there's opposition, often the apostles would literally have to flee for their lives, lest they either be beaten or thrown into prison, or worse, in some cases, put to death. We're going to see that same pattern again tonight. And we talked a little bit about this last time, that sometimes the apostles would flee from city to city, as Jesus had instructed them to do uh, when persecution arose. But they certainly weren't fleeing out of fear for their own lives, because, again, as we'll see tonight, they would often go right back to those same towns that they had fled from to build up the disciples that they had left behind, and often uh, face more trouble, and that didn't seem to bother them. They, they did not care for their own lives. They had come to a place where their own lives meant very little to them. It was just to complete the task of testifying to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And whether or not you and I are called to be apostles, hopefully the lives of these men should inspire us. It should really give us new courage, new boldness, even in our little sphere, whether it's our family, our neighborhood, our workplace, to go in there boldly, stand for Christ, preach the Word of God, and let God back us up and confirm His Word through us. But they seem to have this focus almost a one-track mind, that whenever they went to a new place, they zoomed right in and got to work, preaching Jesus Christ. Now, we left last time in the middle of our story of Paul and Barnabas in the town of Lystra. That's a very significant place. You want to keep that in the back of your mind, because we're going to see it again and one very important figure came from this 
very city of Lystra. His name is Timothy. And we're going to see more of Timothy when we get to chapter 16 in Acts. And it's quite possible that all of the events we're reading about in chapter 14 that took place in Lystra, Timothy may very well have been there witnessing these events, and that may have been the very thing that sparked him to want to give his all to Christ and eventually start traveling with Paul in his apostolic journeys. So, he came to Lystra, uh, again, fleeing from Iconium because of all the persecution and trouble that got stirred up there. He comes to Lystra, and God works a miracle publicly. A crippled man is miraculously healed. The townspeople, who were very much involved in idol worship and all kinds of false gods, they began to proclaim that the gods had come down to them in human form, in the form of Paul and Barnabas, and they were actually getting ready to offer animal sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas, saying that they were the gods Hermes and Zeus. I don't know if you've studied Greek mythology, but some of these names you may remember. Anyway, they thought that these were the gods, plural, come down in human form, and so they're getting ready to worship them. And we uh, were talking about this as we ended last time. Throughout the book of Acts, the apostles were given great grace, great glory was entrusted to these men. They were working miraculous signs, wonders, even raising the dead. And with that always comes the threat of people putting them on a pedestal and even worshiping them as some sort of a superman, or in this case, as a god. And we talked about how the greatest test of all is not when people are angry at you, shouting at you, opposing you, yelling at you. The greatest test of all is when they're praising you. Many a great man or woman of God has gone down in flames when praise and glory came their way and they couldn't handle it. It actually destroyed them. And so, here again, the apostles were well trained in this aspect of the Christian life. They knew that glory was going to come to them, but they would immediately turn that praise and that glory heavenward toward the one and the only one who's worthy of glory and reminding themselves and the crowds, we're just men like you are. There's nothing special about us. It's just the grace of God and the anointing of God upon us. But we're just clay shells like you are. Why are you worshiping us? Why are you showing us special reverence, or why are you about to sacrifice animals to us? We're just human beings. And so, in verses 
14 and 15 of Acts 14. I'm repeating where we ended last time just to get into the flow of things. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, meaning they were coming with animals, getting ready to sacrifice to them, they tore their clothes, rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. Now, here's the challenge. Yes, we are only men, but when we become a Christian, and particularly when God has a calling on our life and an anointing for different types of public ministry, we do supernatural things. We speak supernaturally. Uh, we lay hands on the sick and they recover. Um, signs and wonders follow us. And so, in a sense, we are more than mere men. But we must never lose sight of this fact. We're just clay vessels. The only good thing in us that makes us any different is the power of God, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of God's grace, and therefore we must be very, very careful to give all of that glory back to God. And we, we talked about what happens when you don't. Classic example we saw in chapter 12 when Herod gave his speech and they said almost the same thing. This is the voice of a God, not a man. But he didn't give that praise back to God and he was immediately struck dead, eaten of worms. So we must be careful when God uses us, when He places grace, glory, and honor upon His servants. These uh, apostles were very, very careful to turn all of that attention right back to the Lord. And they continued in verse 15, and here's where we really want to launch off tonight. He told them, We are bringing you good news telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself, but in just a few verses, we're going to watch this whole thing do a 180. It's going to shift completely around from them worshiping them and ready to offer animal sacrifices to them stoning Paul, possibly to death. Okay, So things can change very quickly in just a few moments. And perhaps part of the reason for that change is right here in verse 15. What did they say? We're bringing you good news, and we're telling you to turn from these worthless things. All this worship, all of your... Uh, temples to Zeus and Hermes and these animal sacrifices, it's all vain. It's all worthless. Our message has been, turn from this worthless nonsense to the true and the living God. That may have offended them. They might not have liked the 
implications that all of their religion, all of their worship was worthless. But this was a Gentile crowd, and it's important as we study through the book of Acts to see the wisdom of God that he gave to these apostles. They didn't just preach the same exact message to all the different groups of people that they met. They were able to tailor that message to the listeners. Now, they weren't changing the truth of God's word, but they were adapting their approach to that particular group. When they were with Jews, they spoke very differently than they did when they were with Gentiles. They understood the mindset of the people, and that's where they met them with their message. I want you to notice, knowing that these were not Jews, they were Gentiles, very different, for instance, from the way Peter spoke on the day of Pentecost to an all-Jewish crowd in Jerusalem, where he's quoting the prophet Joel, he's quoting from David, he's using Old Testament scriptures to prove to them that Jesus is the Messiah. None of that here. All Paul said is, we're bringing you good news, we're telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, and here's an important part, who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. What's he doing? He's meeting them where they can understand him. He's talking about the God who made everything. Everybody can relate to that. Now, had Paul started firing off scriptures from Isaiah and Zechariah and and Deuteronomy, he would have lost them in the first 30 seconds of his message. But he's going into what we refer to in the theological realm as general revelation. Theologians often uh, talk about two types of revelation that God has given to us. One he's given to all mankind. It's called general revelation. We're going to get into this more in a minute. It's the revelation of God through his creation. And it's a powerful revelation. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. They're speaking. There's a voice going out from the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, that there's a God. Anybody, anywhere on the face of the earth can understand that message. It's the general revelation of God through his creation. There's also what is called special revelation. That goes beyond the revelation of God through the creation. That's the revelation of God through his word, and more specifically, in these last days, through his Son, the Word of God. So, he's reminding them here, there's a living God. You'll know him by what he's made. He made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. And we're bringing you good news about that God. 
<clears throat> the living God. Then he reminds the people of how God had expressed his kindness and his goodness to them just through his providence, his provision of rain and fruitful seasons and food for them to eat, things that anybody can relate to. You'll notice this again when we get to Acts 17, where Paul is again addressing Gentiles in Athens, Greece. He says very similar things to them there. Now, having said that, in verse 16, he makes a very simple statement. He says, in the past, he let all nations go their way. What a simple statement. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. In Acts 17, when Paul speaks to the Greeks in Athens, he states it a little bit differently, but basically the same. He says, in the past, God overlooked your ignorance. But, now, he's commanding everyone to repent. He doesn't say that here. All he says is, in the past, God let nations go their own way. But he's also indicating, that was in the past. Now, something's changed. Now, God brought us here to bring you good news of a living God. Now, it doesn't state it explicitly, but it's implied that they certainly would have spoken to these folks about the need for them to repent. It's implied in what he said in verse 15, you need to turn from these worthless things. Turning is repentance. You need to turn from these worthless things to the living God suggesting again, repentance. You need to turn from what you've done in the past. God winked at that. He overlooked it in the past, but not anymore. Now he's calling you to a change. He's calling you to turn to the right God, the living God. How do we know we've got the right God? He made everything. He's the creator of the universe. And all of these images and statues and false gods that they had been worshiping, they had done that in ignorance. And in the past, God let them do that stuff. But now, it's a different time. Now, you must turn from these worthless things to the living God. Good message for us here in America. We have all kinds of idolatry in America. It may not be in the form of uh, worshipping Zeus or Hermes or physical statues, but we've talked about this a lot. An idol is anything that takes the place of God. Whoops! Ouch! Could be our job, our career, our money-making what we like to do with our spare time. You can fill in the blanks. We all have idols. We either learn how to 
lay them down and understand that they're worthless things and start focusing our worship and our attention on the living God, or we end up no different than these folks worshiping a false god, a dead god, running after something that isn't really even a true god. So, they're being called to turn to that, and again, the only real evidence Paul gives them is God made everything. You all can relate to that. You look up in the night sky, you see the sun, the moon, the stars, you know uh, the wonder of creation because every human heart can understand that. One of my favorite verses is in Ecclesiastes 3 where it says, He set eternity in men's hearts. He set eternity in men's hearts. Paul would have known that. And so he goes right to the heart of the matter. You already know there's a creator. God wrote that on your heart. When God created man, he made him in his image and likeness. And Paul speaks about this at length in Romans chapter 1. And if you've ever heard me teach on Romans 1, I think I can prove very effectively, beyond any shadow of a doubt, there's no such thing as an atheist. They don't exist. I don't even like the word. It's a cop-out. Paul doesn't talk about atheists in Romans 1. He talks about all men had a knowledge of God. They all know there's a creator God, but they suppress him. They try to turn him off. They try to pretend he's not there when all around them they have overwhelming evidence that there is a living God. And therefore, Paul says, all men are without excuse. Listen to these words in Romans 1, verses 19 and 20. Again, this is just pointing to what we called general revelation, the revelation of God through his creation. Romans 1, verses 19 and 20. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, in the context, he's talking about all mankind. No exceptions here. It's not that the atheist hasn't been told something about God. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. That is so important for you and me to understand, particularly when we're trying to share Christ with an unsaved person. You can go in there knowing full well this man, this woman, this child already knows about God. I don't care what they say they are. Oh, I'm an atheist, I'm a Hindu, I'm a Buddhist, I'm a Muslim. I don't care about all that. You already know there's a God. So let's get right to the heart of the matter. Let's cut to the chase. You know about God. He made it plain to you. What have you done with that information? That's the question. God made it plain to them. How? Verse 20. The creation. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, now get this, 
God's invisible. His qualities are invisible. The creation's visible. Everybody can see it. It's crystal clear, so plain. But God is revealing invisible things about himself through the visible things he's made. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood, not from the Bible, not from you or me preaching to them, from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. This is why I'm so passionate to preach God the Creator, to teach young people that evolution is a lie, it's a farce, it is not even science, it's willfully ignoring all the evidence around us and my friend, you are without excuse if you even claim to be an atheist. Look around you. The evidence is overwhelming. What is the creation revealing to us? God's eternal power and His divine nature. Everywhere you look, whether you look under a microscope, through a telescope, or out your back window, you see the most amazing evidence of a supernatural, all-powerful, all-wise God. It's beyond our ability to comprehend someone making all of this. And it causes you to fall on your face and worship God. Every time you look at it, every time you learn something new about what God has made, and again, that's just this general revelation. We haven't even gotten to the scriptures yet. We haven't even gotten to Christ yet. Just the physical creation is enough to leave every human being that has ever walked this earth without any excuse. God made it plain to them who he is, and putting that together with Ecclesiastes 3, he already placed eternity in their hearts. He stamped his image on every man, woman, and child. So it's changed the way I witness to unsaved people now. I don't need to argue and argue and argue to try to prove God to them. I just go right in there and I say, you know there's a God. Your heart has already told you that. So let's move beyond that now. What are you doing with the knowledge and the information that God has already given you. And if you read all of Romans 1, what many people do is they suppress that information. They suppress that knowledge. They choose to believe a lie. Evolution is a lie. It's a farce. It's absolutely ridiculous to even begin to think that all of this amazing design around us just happened randomly. It cannot possibly be. Can't possibly be. The evidence is overwhelming. So, Paul uses that line of reasoning with these folks. There's a living God. You'll know him. You already know him. Because he made heaven and earth. And sea and everything in them, you need to turn from your man-made gods, your idols and the, the f foolish 
and worthless things that you've been worshiping, turn to the living God. And even after saying all of that, in verse 18, they still want to worship Paul and Barnabas. It says in verse 18, Even with these words, they, the apostles, had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. So they're still bringing their bowls and their garlands and whatever else they were going to lay at their feet to worship them. They're still bent on worshiping Paul and Barnabas, saying these are the gods that have come down in human form. And now notice how quickly all of this changes. Verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. Just a little side thought here. The word persecute is actually very closely related to pursuing or chasing down someone. And we see that literally here. Paul's persecutors are following him. They're actually pursuing him now. As he goes from one town to the next, they're chasing after him. They're chasing him down. They've come from the places that he left when he fled from their persecution. They're bringing it after him. And it says here, some Jews, notice the source of it again, some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. We talked about this last time. Over and over you find this, the Jews themselves were not always the ones who directly caused the trouble. They very cleverly stirred up the Gentiles to turn against the apostles and do their dirty work. So here, the Jews come from, not from Antioch in Syria, it's a little confusing because there are two Antiochs here, but this is Pisidian Antioch, where they had already uh, been on this missionary journey. So these Jews have come from Pisidian Antioch and Iconium, where they had just recently been. And they caught up with Paul, caught up with Barnabas, and because Paul was the chief speaker, they direct all of their ire at him. Verse 19, it says, They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. Now, it's not real clear who did this. If you read this whole verse again, it seems to indicate the Jews got the people stirred up, and they're the ones that stoned Paul. Again, they did the dirty work, but they were incited or inspired to do that by the Jews that had come from 
Pisidian, Antioch, and Iconium, but they were too cowardly to do it themselves, so they won the crowd over, and apparently the crowd then got so stirred up, they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. Now, it doesn't say he was dead. I personally think he was, and I'll talk about that in a moment. All it says is they thought he was dead. I mean, they stoned this guy well and proper. He wasn't moving. He wasn't breathing. They thought he was dead. And he may very well have been. And these same Jews just would not quit. They weren't content that Paul and Barnabas had left their town. They've now caught up with them, stirred up more trouble. And I want you to notice this, how quickly this crowd went from worshiping them, saying the gods have come down in human form, to stoning them literally to death. It seems to have all taken place very quickly, that shift. And it certainly reminds us of another scene where you can see how fickle the heart of man is, how quickly people can change. That's why the Bible says, don't worry about men's opinion. Why are you seeking man's praise? One day they're praising you, the next minute they're stoning you. Or as in the case of Jesus, one day they're laying down their palm branches in the street saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel. The same people, hours later, were shouting again, crucify him, crucify him. That's quite a shift. Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel to crucify him, kill this man, away with him. And so, there's this huge shift in the opinions or the feelings of these people toward Paul and Barnabas, going from idol worship to stoning. Now, as I mentioned, they may have taken offense at several things that Paul said to them. Number one, he didn't mince words. He said, what you're doing here is worthless. We're telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. They might have taken offense at that, although, even after he said that, in verse 18, they're still wanting to offer their sacrifices to him. So I don't know that that argument holds up. Some of them might have not liked the insinuation that, what, you mean our temple to Zeus is worthless? Who's this guy telling us that our religion is worthless? Um, they could have taken offense at that. It's more likely that what really offended them is their refusal to accept their worship, their sacrifices, and their honors. That might have really put them off, and that coupled with the Jews coming there, saying, 
Look at look at these guys. Why are you worshiping them? They're being offensive to you. They're offending your gods. They're offending your temples. And now they're offending you. They won't even accept your honors, your sacrifices, and your worship. You need to stone these guys and be done with them. Well, they finally won the crowd over, and they stoned Paul. <coughs> How quickly their love turned to hatred. And how quickly the same will happen in your life. You'll see it. Sooner or later, you're going to see this with your own eyes, and it's going to amaze you. The same people that come and say, Oh, you've been like a god to me, Pastor. Oh, you speak such wonderful words and such a, an anointing on your life, and then two days later, they're ready to turn you into the authorities. They hate you. So, I wouldn't be too worried about winning popularity uh, contests in this Christian life. So, back to Paul. They stoned him thinking he was dead. Now, one thing we do know, this was a very severe beating. It, at the very least, left him lifeless, looking like he was dead, totally unconscious. He's not moving. He's not showing any signs of life. This is undoubtedly the event that Paul refers to in his long list of sufferings and hardships in 2 Corinthians 11, where he says, you know, I was shipwrecked, uh, beaten with rods, and once I was stoned, 2 Corinthians 11.25. I'm sure it's the same event. Once I was stoned. And, in writing to the Galatians, he talks about bearing in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. No doubt, this stoning, along with some of the other beatings he had received, left scars, permanent marks in his body of what he had suffered for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, remember, they had fled from one city when they got word that trouble was brewing. So, here they are again in Derby. Not only is trouble brewing, trouble has come. Paul has gotten the beating of his life, the stoning of his life, left him looking like he was dead. I think based on what happens next, you can make a pretty good case that he was dead. This guy needed a miracle if he was ever going to move again. Verse 20. After the disciples had gathered around him, he got up, and where did he go? He went back into the city the city where he just got stoned to death. What does he do? He goes right back into Derby. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Now, all we can go on is what Luke writes. It says, after he was dragged out of the city, thinking he was dead, all of the believers, all of the disciples, gathered around him. Now, it doesn't say anything more. 
it's pretty obvious that they were gathered around him praying. <clears throat> Doesn't say that, but I think that's a safe bet. That they gathered around him, saw the gravity of his condition, and they began to cry out to God, Lord, have mercy on Paul. Heal Paul. He's dead, Lord. Look at him. He's lifeless. He's unconscious. Touch him, Lord. I think they had quite a prayer meeting there. And what does it say? After they had gathered around him. So after this prayer meeting, or whatever they did, something happened, because he got up. Dead men don't just get up. People who look dead, who have been stoned almost to death, if he wasn't fully dead, they don't just get up and start walking back into the city. Something absolutely miraculous took place here. Whether they specifically prayed for his healing, we, we don't know. It doesn't say that. I think they did, but it doesn't say that. All it says is they gather around him, and the next thing you know, he's back on his feet. Whatever happened, it was miraculous. And looking at the actual words, it says after they gathered around him, he got up. The Greek word there doesn't just mean to get out of your chair and, you know, go someplace else in the house. It, it's a very specific word that means to stand up, to raise up again, or to rise again. Kind of sounds like resurrection to me. To raise up again, to rise again. So, Paul was raised up again, back to life, from that dead, lifeless state that we see in the first part of verse 20. And he seems to be quite well. He doesn't need, you know, any bandages, any splints, any casts on his arms or legs, uh, any crutches. He got up and went right back into the city. He seems to be quite fine. I think a miracle took place. And remember a, a while back I mentioned Timothy. We're going to meet him again in chapter 16. He lived in the neighboring town of Lystra. It's very, very possible that he was actually present there, that he saw what happened to Paul here at Lystra. Listen to what Paul writes to Timothy later concerning some of these things. 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 and 11. You, Timothy, however... Know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. <clears throat> doesn't come right out and say Timothy was in that circle gathered around uh, Paul, but it seems pretty likely 
based on what Paul wrote later to Timothy. You know. You know about my sufferings. You were there. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the towns we've just been studying here in chapter 14. Timothy would have at least heard about it. I personally think he was there. It marked him. It had such an impact on his life that when Paul comes to Lystra again in chapter 16, Timothy leaves everything and starts traveling with Paul. Now, back to this little statement. It's such a simple statement. He got up and went back into the city. (laughs) Sounds simple, but this guy was just looking dead a few minutes ago. Now he's back on his feet, quite well. And where does he go? Right back to the same city. Showing no fear, showing no concern for his own life or his own safety. He's able to walk right back into the city where he had been stoned. I don't know. I think it may have been with a little bit of, I'm going to go back and show these guys what God did for me. I'm going to go let them see what the power of God did. They stoned me to death. I'm quite well again. I want them to see me. So it's almost like he's parading himself right back in front of the persecutors, saying, ha ha, got you. You thought you killed me. Look what God did. He raised me up. He's a living God. He's a powerful God. You can't fight against him. You can stone me again if you want, but he'll raise me up again. And it was certainly to embolden the young disciples and young converts that were around him there so that they might not also be fearful and run away and hide. As we've already been discussing, sometimes the apostles would flee from impending danger, they got word about some trouble brewing, yeah, they would flee. But on too many other occasions, they walked right back into the lion's den without any fear whatsoever. These guys had come to a place where they did not care about their own life. They were always ready and willing to lay it all down, and make the ultimate sacrifice for Jesus Christ. This should really inspire us. And we have plenty of modern day examples of this. You know, I don't know if you heard, uh, some of these Coptic Christians in Egypt that have been slaughtered and put to death in recent times. In one instance... They were on a bus, and they were offloaded from the bus. A father and his son are there. And these Islamic killers, they gave them the option, all you need to do right now in front of all your uh, Christian friends is deny Christ and pledge yourself to the Muslim faith and we'll spare you. They gave the option first to the father. He refused. They put a bullet through his head. Dropped dead. Right in front of his son. 
Then they turn to the son and say, what about you? We're going to give you a chance too to deny this Christ that you claim to believe in and you can accept Allah and the Islamic faith and you'll live. The son said, no way. Bullet through his head, he died too. These guys are bold. Say what you will about them. These guys are bold. They were fearless, willing to lay down their lives for Jesus. God blessed them. They had conviction. They had backbone, just like these apostles. They weren't afraid. They weren't afraid of what you know man could do to them. Paul was always ready to die. He says later, I die daily. I'm ready to die every single day if that's what God wants. And so, as we bring this part of the story to a conclusion, I don't think we're going to be able to get too much farther tonight. Uh, we're certainly not done. Uh, and Paul and Barnabas, from this point, are going to travel through Derby and then go back to Antioch in Syria. But in doing that, they're actually going to backtrack and go back through all of the towns where they've al already preached, kind of doing follow-up and strengthening all of the disciples that they had raised up in those different places. So let me just go ahead and introduce our next section, and this is where we will pick it up next time, because we have a lot more to talk about, but I'll at least read the next portion of scripture from Acts to get us started here. <clears throat> Acts 14, continuing from verse 21 to 25. It says, They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and, with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Now, we've titled this part 8 in our study, Paul's First Missionary Journey. Well, it would seem, from what we just read, that this is the conclusion of that journey, and therefore that should be the end of part 8. Well, we've added on the next part, which is not technically the missionary journey. It's sort of a sidebar 
to the whole story of them going to Jerusalem for what is commonly called the Jerusalem Council, where they discuss different issues that had arisen in the church. But yes, technically, we just read about the conclusion of the first missionary journey. So they've kind of doubled back through all of the towns that they visited in reverse order, doing what we would commonly refer to as follow-up. Follow-up is very important. Yes, it's great to go to a new place, preach the gospel, win new souls, and then move on. But if there isn't follow-up, many of those souls will fall away, and they'll never go on to become true disciples. The real apostolic ministry that we're seeing emerge here wasn't just pioneering, groundbreaking, going to a new town, and preaching the gospel. It was going back there after a period of time, sometimes multiple visits, to strengthen them, to guide them, and to help that church begin to arise and take on form in that particular city. Notice, it wasn't on their initial visit that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders. They did that when they came back through later on in this so-called follow-up mission. So, they preach the good news, they go back through all of these different towns that we've all talked about now, Lystra, Iconium, Pisidian, Antioch. They're going back through Pamphylia, Perga, all the different towns that we've looked at. They're going back now, and it says, they strengthened the disciples. Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them. So, obviously, new believers need strengthening. They need encouraging. They need follow-up. And we can learn a lot from that in our churches. Uh, praise God when a new soul gets saved. Well, we've got to follow up on them. We've got to visit them. We've got to strengthen them. We've got to keep a close eye on them. We've got to keep watering that seed, make sure it grows properly, and so forth. So, They strengthened the disciples and encouraged them to remain true to the faith. Now we have an example of some of the words they were speaking to these disciples to do that. These were the words that Luke chooses to give as an example of how they were strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. What do they say? We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Wow. That doesn't sound very nice, Paul. You should have left that out. Should have talked about, you know, all the blessings, prosperity, how God wants to make you rich and make you the head and not the tail, and and all this. Well, there's a time and a place to teach that, but what he wanted to get across to them is, 
you're going to be treated the same way we have been. We've been persecuted. I was beaten, stoned to death. Uh, you're going to go through hardship, so get ready. Be strong. Be encouraged. You're going to face trials. You're going to face tribulations. But be of good cheer. Through those, we enter the kingdom of God. Remain true to the faith. And then, on this follow-up visit, in these different places, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders. Appointed elders in each church. Notice several things, and we'll talk more about this next time. There's now a recognizable church in each of these places. God has raised up a church, and we've talked about this over and over. The job of the apostles is to lay the foundation for the church. They're the pioneers. They're the ones that dig up the ground and lay the footers. They lay the, the rock-solid foundation upon which others can build. But every time a new church was founded or begun in the book of Acts, it was through the apostolic ministry. And part of that apostolic founding is seen here. It's having the discernment and having the ability to recognize the structure that God is beginning to put in place in that local church. What did they do? They appointed elders in each church. And we'll talk a lot about this next time. Elders is always plural. Always elders in each church. Each church is singular, but each church had elders. And They've now had some time to grow, to begin to develop, and notice they now are recognizing certain ones in the group that are manifesting that grace, that calling from God to be an elder. And so they recognized those men ordained them, appointed them. This was not something they did lightly. Oh, just passing through Derby. John, you be an elder. Uh, Harry, you look pretty good over there. You be an elder. No, 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 no. They did this with prayer and fasting. They sought God to make sure about each one of these people because they understood these are the folks that are going to be in charge of this church. These are the folks that are being appointed, not by me and Barnabas, by the Holy Spirit to oversee this church, to shepherd this church, to care for this flock, to make sure these disciples continue to grow properly. So with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Paul and Barnabas are leaving. They're not going to be able to keep tabs on these guys 24-7. They've got to trust God. They were turning these men over to God, saying, Lord, we're trusting you that you've appointed these men 
to oversee the church. Now you give them the grace, you enable them to do that job effectively. We've got to move on. We're leaving them now in charge of this church. It's quite fascinating to study what Paul and Barnabas did on this first missionary trip. And already by the end of this first trip, we have established churches with elders. We don't know exactly how much time passed. Um, could have been about a year or so. I don't know exactly what the timetable is, but they were given some time, not a lot, but some time to grow in the Lord and to begin to manifest different ones from the group that were showing this anointing, this maturity, this grace from God to be in leadership positions. So that's where we're going to pick it up next time as this first journey comes to a close and we'll finish by looking more carefully at the ministry, the calling, the responsibility of elders and then we'll move on to chapter 15 with what we called the Jerusalem Council. For now, let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the inspiration that you've given to us through the record of Luke, particularly concerning the life, the character of these apostles. Lord, these men were sold out to Jesus Christ. They were ready and willing at any time to lay it all down for the sake of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would inspire us you would motivate us. Lord, we may not be apostles or prophets, but you've called every one of us to do the work of an evangelist. You've called every one of us to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And yes, we're going to face opposition. We're not always going to be liked or cheered or honored or worshipped. People will blaspheme us. People will try to hurt us. People will say bad things about us. We might lose our job. We might lose our home. God, help us to have the same spirit that Paul and Barnabas had. They had counted the cost. They had already done what you told them to do. Sit down and count the cost. They had already done that. And they were willing to pay whatever was necessary to complete the task of testifying to the grace of God, telling others about the glorious salvation that they had experienced through Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would encourage us, embolden us, strengthen us, anoint us, that each one of us can be effective vessels in your hands to bring salvation to this lost and messed up world around us. God, send forth workers into your harvest. Raise up men and women in the churches with a burden, with a passion, with an anointing to go forth and share the good news of Christ with others. God, we commit ourselves into your hands this night Keep us, 
bless us, watch over us, make your face shine on us, give us your grace, give us your